Welcome back to the podcast. What a week it's been. We just launched the next cohort of our incredible group of coaches on our diploma in positive psychology and coaching that I run, that I love. I just wanted to say a big shout out to all of our coaches, past and present, that I've trained. That's why I do this. It's the thing that I enjoy the most is taking a group of people on just a transformational experience, their mind, body, soul. And then we end up in this beautiful place where we can contribute and give back to this short and precious planet of ours. And if there's something that might interest you at some point, if you want to come and train with me and learn everything I know about life, business, coaching, I'm going to go and find your arate, this beautiful ancient Greek word that means to fulfill one's full potential, to show up and shine your light with real direction and purpose. I think that's the quest that we're all on. That's why our coaching is called the arate way, a pathway in many ways to your arate. Do visit the main website, arateway.com. That's A-R-E-T-E, way.com. Also check out my website, andyramage.com. On there, there's loads of free resources that you might enjoy. If you want to take a break from alcohol, there's the seven steps to quit alcohol on there. If you're interested in self-development and journaling, there's my full 10X journaling system on there. It's all free. Go and check it out. I'd love to get you in my world. You'll also get my your note from your coach, which is my weekly newsletter when you download any of those free resources so come and join in the fun and also one more thing don't forget we are making this documentary this alcohol-free documentary that's going to change the world and our guest today William Porter no doubt will be in that documentary so if you want to be a part of that there's also a link in the show notes to a GoFundMe page where we're raising a bit of early stage income from donations just to kickstart the whole project and anyone that donates 100 pounds or more will get a title credit a credit at the end of the film how cool is that i think it's pretty cool get involved click the link you'll find the link in the show notes click on that link to gofundme you'll also see the two minute trailer which is exclusive to that gofundme page about our alcohol free documentary and then we're off filming pretty soon to go and do the rich roll podcast how cool will that be by the way so keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one all right to today's Guest William Porter is a great mate of mine. He's been at this almost as long as me. In fact, slightly longer than me by marginally. Well, actually, no, do you know, it's almost identical. When we, when we spoke about this sort of offer, it's almost identical. We almost stopped drinking at exactly the same time. It's pretty cool, isn't it? So I've followed William's journey for many, many years, and I think he's done the same of mine. I love his book, Alcohol Explained. It's one of my go-to books, one of the books that I recommend a lot in the alcohol-free space. So I just wanted to get him on the podcast. It's like a meeting of alcohol-free minds. You're going to love this episode, whether you love all things alcohol-free or not. William's a great guy, extremely articulate, helps break down and explain complex ideas in simple terms, hopefully a bit like myself, so I can understand. So buckle up, Get ready. This is going to be a cracker of a podcast and I'll hand you over to William. Let's do this. William, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Nice to be here. Yeah, this is good. Look at us looking all young and handsome. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Like Peter Pan, getting younger and younger, aren't we? Yeah. That is what happens. And we were just talking about this off air and, and I want to start here I'm almost 10 years alcohol-free. I'm 10 years alcohol-free on the 1st of March. I knew you were around a similar 
time. So when is your tenure? It's it's February and I would have to double check. I always have to go back and check the date, but it's the first Saturday after Valentine's Day. So that was, yeah, I think it's the, it must be the 15th or 16th or something. But yeah, so we're so close. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, and we were both joking about it. I don't really know what the date is of mine. I've picked the 1st of March because I know it's in Feb. And the reason I know it's in Feb, in February every year in my old industry, the broken industry, we had an event called the International Petroleum Week. It was the Inter- IP Week, basically, which was a glorified mm piss up there's no better way to describe it than that and it was messy and it was horrific and it was hard and it sounds on the surface that it would have been like wonderful and you get to go to all these fabulous places and it's all free alcohols you can imagine and it's meant to be about connecting and actually it would just beat me up it would upset everyone it would upset our partners we'd be terrible that week at work and we'd drag ourselves through it and it was fun for the first one two three four four five years and then it just became this slog and it was at the end of one of those that i grumbled those immortal words never again bearing in mind i'd said it many times before and there was a whole litany of a build-up to that point but it really was never again so that was 10 years ago so what was your story what brought you to that was it something around valentine's or No, the only, it's a woeful tale, I'm afraid, much worse than your. And I was always a booze drinker and I started off partly, I think, my military, because I served in the 4th Battalion of the Parachute Regiment, which is the Reserve Battalion. But in 2005, I was mobilised and sent out to Iraq. So you do two months build-up training and one of the very bad habits I got into was morning drinking. So I'd get up in the morning and start drinking. And the weird thing is, Andy, I could always turn it on and off. So, you know, I'd have like a week's leave before we do go on whatever build-up course because we have two months build-up training before we went out there and I'd have a week's leave. So I'd just drink all day, every day. And then when I went off to the training, I'd just sober up and get on with it. So so it was I, I could always turn it on and off. And I came back, so, so that kind of put me in that position. And then I was, I left the army. I was working in the financial services industries. I'm in insurance. I'm working in the city as well. And it was honestly, to this day, I can't really identify what happened, but I went out for a business lunch on Tuesday or Wednesday and I just started and just didn't stop. And I just rang in sick and kept drinking. And I don't really know what happened over those five or six days, but I came to, and I'd been drinking constantly i've been i've rung in sick for the best part of a week the wife and kids had gone and i crawled out there on a like i say the saturday afternoon and i know one of the days was valentine's day so i always have to look at the diary and i came out of the alcoholic haze on a on the saturday so the sunday was actually my first day alcohol free but like you i was like i cannot keep doing this it's just ridiculous i'm not doing it anymore and do you think there was a build-up to that moment, i.e. had you been considering it oh, yeah. for, for a long while? Yeah, there, there was, I don't think, so, so to get to that stage, it's not a wake up one day and you're just doing it, you, you build up to it. I had two young kids of sort of six and six months and a year and a half, so the kids were little. I'd been married for three, four years, I guess. So it had built up my wife, my wife drinks, but she only ever has one. Like she's one of those people who literally should pour herself a glass of wine. And two hours later, there's three quarters of it still there and she'll forget about it. So my heavy drinking, it really kind of shone a spotlight on it. 
So I'd really been thinking about it for a long time and also decades, well, decades, couple of quite a few years before that, I'd stopped smoking using Alan Carr's method. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I'm sure yeah, you must yeah. have heard of him. But I really like that kind of just really clinical, common sense approach he took to stop smoking. And I think kind of subconsciously, I'd spent the best part of 20 years drinking, but really thinking about why am I doing this? Is it the glorious thing I'm thinking it is? Or is it something a bit darker and a bit more insidious? And, and yeah, picking it to pieces. So I think by the time I came to stop, I'd, I'd obviously done a lot of almost subconsciously, but thinking around it and trying to piece it together and trying to understand it. And I think it all came together. All the stars were aligned just on that particular day in February back in 2014. Yeah, yeah. I mean, almost ten years. Look at that, ten years of no, consistency years. and energy and health. It's incredible, isn't it? Really, and yeah. and I think your story is reflective of mine and reflective of so many people's stories. That those that are on these longer term stretches of sobriety or alcohol free adventure or whatever you want to frame it, very often it wasn't this spontaneous thing. It wasn't this one off event. It's like that's it, you're done. Actually, when you unpick it a little bit, you realise there was probably years. I mean, there was years in my case, oh, God, two or yeah. three years that sat behind that of reflecting, <clears throat> of thinking, is this working for me? Taking breaks, trying to moderate, <clears throat> drinking beers, then trying to drink all those things that, that we do. <laughs> all those games. It, yeah, 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 that we play and realize none of them work. And the only thing that works eventually yeah. is just to take a genuine clean break and then go on that beautiful adventure of discovery and realize, oh, actually... This is the greatest, for me, this was my, it was the greatest thing I'd ever done in my life. I got my time back and my energy back, my health yeah. back, I lost all the weight, my relationships were better, I was a thousand times better at my job. And then you have that lovely moment of, oh, I've not given anything up anymore. And that was my story. I haven't given anything up. Therefore, it became easy for me in the end. And I know everyone's story mm. is different. I would very much describe myself as a middle lane drinker. Was I on the heavier end of that? Probably. But equally so for me, it allowed me the space to think, this is bloody brilliant. I'm just going to carry on. So how mm. did your sort of relationship with alcohol unfold? You take that break. What does it look like after that? So things got way better for me. So mm. had you gone back to 10 years ago, bearing in mind, I was right in the middle of it exactly 10 years ago. I hadn't quite stopped. I was obviously at the getting towards the worst part. I'd probably have told you in no particular order. The reason I drunk was because of stress of having young kids job was difficult, house wasn't big enough, marriage was difficult as it is when you've got young children, all of those things. And what I actually found when I stopped drinking was when you remove the alcohol and when you get back to like proper sleep um, and really good quality sleep, and because I was in the military, I'd always exercised. And what I do is I exercise during the week and then the weekend I'd be drinking, so I wouldn't exercise. And then that would usually impact Monday and even Tuesday. So my exercise had had a massive hit as well. And so I found the combination of giving up drinking, which allowed me to sleep properly, increasing the fitness. And of course, when you, I don't know if you, well, you said you lost loads of weight. I did the same. I found my, it was so much easier to make healthy food choices when I'd quit drinking. So I bundled all of that together and it just put my mental resilience up. I just felt better able to cope. And what I found was I actually managed to solve most of those problems anyway. But the fact of the matter was they weren't the massive mountains I thought they were. When I got that clarity of mind, and I always call it like mental resilience, just that ability to bat away problems without being overpowered by them, 
I actually found I could cope with those things fine. It wasn't a problem. And of course, over time, I eventually got a new job with better pay. We moved house. The kids have grown up a bit, done all of this stuff. And it's improved massively. So for me personally, I then still found after all that, I was, I think I've all, looking back now, I've always had quite sort of low mood and I didn't really realize at the time. And I would also cycle through worse bouts of feeling like really bad giving up drinking the exercise and the food and anything really helped and I kept going for a lot longer but I still kind of had that so it must have been a couple of years ago I spoke to a doctor about it because it was getting back the, the low points were getting worse yeah. and then I ended up doing some like psychotherapy which helped massively but then a few weeks ago I went into another massive dip so I spoke to the doctor again and they put me on like antidepressants so it's a slightly different story to yours, but the, the thing there is I don't know that I could have ever have drilled into that and actually got to grips with the issue if I'd still been drinking. Because when you're going through that, either you're really hammered or you're crawling out the other side of it feeling absolutely rubbish, you can't quite put your finger on it if there is something wrong. That's so insightful. And it's, I think it's so true and addictive of so many people, isn't it? When you're in that hole, as it were, everything is magnified in terms of those problems in life. And again, I'm not to say that of clearly mm. drinking is the only cause of depression, mental anxiety, but it exasperates everything to such a point. Oh dear, yeah, you're yeah. You're just confused, Absolutely. aren't yeah. you? I think we're confused, confused. Yeah. Is that something like a depression or an anxiety or is it alcohol causing mm. it? But then I feel okay again and then I feel bad again. And then also then you haven't got the yeah, energy yeah or the time to do much about it. And I think Gabor Mate talks yeah. about this, doesn't he? Not why the problem, why the pain very often, and very often mm. alcohol is actually just something that's used to self-medicate something underneath that then gets lost in that noise of alcohol. And we forget what the thing was underneath all along that maybe was drawing us into that place of wanting alcohol to overcome that thing. So when we remove it, I think there's a real bounce back in our mental health. But as you described wonderfully there, it still doesn't mean that we're going to have perfect mental health. And there might be underlying things that were always there, but then you can see them. You know what it is, don't yeah. you? Instead of it being this sort of confusing, like jumbled mess in your mind, it's like, oh, actually, I'm living really cleanly, really healthily. I'm really exercising and I'm still experiencing low mood. At that point, that's got to be worth a conversation with a GP or, or whoever it may be. Yeah, that was exactly it. And I think that I think this is kind of the, what I now say to people is you, you, you give up drinking, you, you might be very lucky like you, you were and a lot of I know a lot of people who do this, they're drinking, they feel depressed, they're on antidepressants, they give up drinking, I'm not saying you were on antidepressants, but my, my point is, you they give up. And actually, they find they can come off the antidepressants. And it was alcohol causing the problem all along. So that I think there's a lot of people who they're very lucky, they give up alcohol. And that was their problem and they're fine. And yeah. not to say life's perfect because everyone has ups and downs, but actually, you know what, that was the thing. And without that, I'm, I'm good. Or you, you find that there might be some other kind of underlying issue. But I think that's the main message. You, you can't really get to grips with all that, what that issue is, or as you say, have the mental fortitude to try and do something about it while you're still drinking. And, and it's really hard to pinpoint what's going on. Like I say, if you're going through that massive intoxication versus feeling awful the next day and that withdrawal that sends your neurochemistry into a spin anyway and just yeah. to broaden this topic a little bit just why we're here i really believe and i'm quite passionate about this that if you were to go to see a gp or, or medical professional or whatever it looks like counselor therapist 
about low mood or trying to figure out what's happening inside your own world mentally, I believe one of the first places to start is what is your relationship like with alcohol? Absolutely. Almost the first yeah. question. But I would suggest and I would assume that's probably a question that never even really gets asked very often or it's an afterthought whereas for me it should be the first thought what's your relationship with like with alcohol are you in the middle lane there's obviously that whole gradient of your relationship with alcohol and it might be then something to remove to have a look what lies beneath and it might be as you described there's almost those two scenarios if you're like me i felt like i was depressed at times and i felt anxious mm -hmm. a lot of the time when i stopped drinking those two things went away and they've never ever come back so i was really lucky Scenario two, mm. it might be actually that when you stop drinking, yes, you feel so much better, but still there's something underlying that might need some medication or some therapy or whatever it may be. But you can't get there unless you remove alcohol. So for me, I think we still have this massive disconnect, don't we, between alcohol and our mental health. It's like the, the practitioners, the professionals don't seem to be going there. If When in fact, how can you ever really figure out where you are mentally if you're throwing in this grenade into your neurochemistry even once or twice a week that blows it all up, then you have to withdraw from it. How can you really know where you are mentally in terms of your mental health whilst you've got that going on? So for me, it feels it would make perfect sense as long as it's safe to do. Take a break and review what the next steps are rather than jump into next steps whilst you're drinking. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the problems with it. And it, it, the trouble is as well that there's a lot we humans don't understand about what's involved in this because one of the biggest impacts on our mental health is sleep and i think everyone has to appreciate that and everybody knows how much better they feel after a good night's sleep versus waking up feeling exhausted alcohol a lot of people think going to sleep is just about falling unconscious for a few hours and then you wake up and you're good to go when you fall asleep you have to go through very specific sleep cycles and they're characterized by very specific brain activity so you fall asleep different parts of your brain kick in they do all sorts of different stuff that they do not do while you're awake and if they go through all those processes you wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go when you drink alcohol your brain doesn't do that you don't sleep when you're drinking alcohol causes unconsciousness but it's not sleep. Biggest reported symptom of a hangover is tiredness. People drink alcohol. You have a drink. Now I generally get by on six or seven hours sleep. I wake up feeling fine. When I was drinking, I could have laid in bed for 12, 14 hours and still been exhausted. But that's because the, the inverted commas sleep wasn't sleep. It was just alcohol induced unconsciousness. And we humans don't even understand what a massive impact that has on our mental health. We know it's massive and physical health because there's a great correlation between different types of cancer and lack of sleep, um, as well as depression and mental health issues. But literally every time you have a drink, you're removing your body's ability to sleep, which has a direct and massive impact on your mental health for the following day. It's huge. And like you say, even if you're doing it, couple of days a week that's two sevenths of your entire life you're preventing yourself from getting the sleep you need and i would argue as well especially as you age even if it is twice a week that you're drinking you don't really recover from that in terms of your sleep for a day or two therefore that might be five or yeah. six days a lot of people i've said this middle lane drinkers i think have been underperforming 
in their lives for mm. decades without even yep. knowing. And a lot of that is down to sleep. When I go into the big corporates and I talk about the two things you can do to absolutely optimize your performance, remove alcohol tactically and optimize sleep. The two things that you can do that yep. make such an impactful difference. And alcohol destroys your sleep. Therefore, the number one mm. thing clearly to potentially take a break from is alcohol because it will optimize your sleep. Someone described it to me like this, a guy called Nick Littlehouse. He wrote a book called Sleep. He was the original sleep coach mm. for Man United back in the David Beckham. Oh, wow. Days. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he's, really cool, he's a really cool guy. And he's, his book is brilliant. It's called Sleep. And he described it like this. He said, we, we sleep in these 90 minute cycles, as you mentioned, and it's like walking down a flight of stairs. And if you can imagine for 40, 45 minutes at the start, you start in very light sleep and you walk all the way down the stairs and you get to that deep restorative replenishing sleep. And then you walk all the way up and you end up after 90 minutes in something that looks like light sleep and you repeat that process. Mm -hmm. And if you do that four or five times, you've, you're optimal in your sleep. What alcohol does, it stops you getting to those lower deep restorative levels. So you're only going down a few flights of steps instead of going down four or five. So you don't get that replenishing sleep. So you might be sedated because that's what it does. It sedates your brain for eight hours, mm. like you described, but you wake up tired and grumpy and snappy and you crave stodge food. That's why obesity is also linked to tiredness. But then it gets worse because then I read Dr. Matthew Walker, who I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Yeah, that's brilliant, that book, isn't it? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Expert. He yeah. speaks about micro awakenings. So what he was suggesting mm -hmm. is that almost you start to walk down that flight of stairs, but then you run back up again really quickly into light sleep, yeah. but it's so quick. You don't even know you're maintaining consciousness again. And then you go back down and you still not get into restorative sleep. And then you bounce back up again. So you're like running up and down the stairs about a hundred times. He said, you literally might wake about a hundred times in those like one, those 90 minute sleep cycles. It's no wonder. So, this is why I think you're right. People don't quite even appreciate the fact that those couple of drinks are destroying their sleep and the knock-on impact of just that alone, let alone we're not even going to get into the alcohol itself, have such an impact, don't they, on our performance, our health, our state of mind, our mental agility, our temper, to be short-tempered and grumpy and snappy with loved ones and we just put it down to being like a grumpy old man or whatever you want to put it down to when actually it's the yeah. fact that you've had terrible sleep yeah that was one of the things I found I found because I always because obviously I said when I stopped drinking my kids were quite little and I like my, my experience of fatherhood at that point was oh god they're so annoying I really don't like this and actually when I stopped drinking and got a bit of sleep it's actually you know what this is good I'm enjoying my time with them but you can't wake up with kids tired and grouchy that's just the worst thing in the world I would say the two things you need for parenting is patience and energy and they're two things alcohol absolutely robbed me of. But, but the sleep thing I find absolutely fascinating because it feeds into this whole thing. People drink alcohol thinking it relaxes them. But of course, what happens because it's a sedative, your brain releases stimulants to counter the sedating effects of the alcohol. So obviously adrenaline, which everyone's heard of, but also cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Now, because this sedative comes in, so your brain does lots of things to counter it, but one of them is to, to release these stimulants to try and counter the stating effects of the alcohol to get the brain chemistry back to normal. So that's why your heart rate goes up when you're drinking. So if you've got like a Fitbit or a Garmin or one of those things that measures your sleep and stress, 
when you sleep, your stress levels go up through the roof because when you're drinking alcohol, although your brain is sedated, so you think, oh, I'm relaxed, actually your body's doing the opposite. It's going into massive overdrive and stress. Your heart rate goes up. That's why you get flushed. Your heart rate's going through the roof. It goes through the roof when you exercise. So although you feel relaxed, it's the drug that's making you feel relaxed. And actually your body isn't relaxed at all. It's going into this hyper stress mode, trying to counter the alcohol. So it's this weird thing. So we all kind of sit there and think, oh, I've had a bad day. I'll have a drink and try and relax. But it's doing the absolute opposite of what it actually feels like it's doing. And on that note, and I want to explore this in a bit more depth and detail, because I think the relaxation piece is huge, isn't it? I think we, we dress that up in all its different mm. guises from being able to be more socially relaxed or just de-stress. It's all under the same umbrella of relaxation. And that's the bit that I want to dig into with you. And I loved, we'll talk about the book as well, Alcohol Explained, was one of my favorite books when I got into this alcohol-free adventure, which I really appreciated. I've read many times, in fact, I have it hard copy. It's a good book when I've got it in hard copy on Kindle and it's got notes all over it. And I was in there a little bit earlier, but this piece of around relaxation, I want to dig into because before we do talking about heart rate, like my resting heart rate when I was drinking was 68. Now, okay. 10 years after not drinking, it's 42. I mean, that is just wow. an incredible okay. difference. And there's that assumption that alcohol helps you to relax. And in the early stages of drinking it has that impression but as you say then the body mm. it's like that swan isn't it going across the lake that looks like it's graceful it. underneath its feet are going like crazy trying to keep it afloat. Nuts. Yeah. that's what i think we don't appreciate that's happening in our body so people turn to alcohol to relax but it's the very thing that actually then causes them stress so i don't know if we can dig into that a little bit deeper in the sense that it it, on one hand, what it appears to give, it, it takes away on the other. And a lot of the time, that sense of relaxation is not true relaxation. It's relief. It's relief from withdrawal, for example, if that drink follows the next day. I wonder, could you articulate on that? Because you do it so well. So, so it's partly what I spoke about before. So your brain creates and excretes a huge array of chemicals, drugs, and hormones. It makes them and creates them. So stuff you've heard of, like I just mentioned, adrenaline and cortisol too, but endorphin, serotonin. There's a massive number of these, and humans don't even have a complete le list, let alone do we understand how they all work to one another. But what, the, what we do know is the brain works by way of something called homeostasis, which is just a fancy word for a balance of all these chemicals, drugs, and hormones. So I quite often think of it as those old-fashioned weighing scales where you had a tower in the middle and a bar and then two baskets, and you made it balance up. Obviously, this isn't <laughs> detailed neuroscience or anything. This is just how I think of it, and it just helps yeah. to picture it. But imagine you've got one of those old-fashioned weighing scales, and you've got stimulants in one side, which obviously things wake you up and make you feel alert and active, and depressants or sedatives on the other side, which are things that make you feel relaxed and sleepy and all the rest of it. And imagine it's completely well-balanced. And when it's well-balanced, you as a human feel good. Whatever your good is, and we all have different layers or levels of what feels good or whatever, but you feel at your best, you're like, you're confident, you're mentally resilient, you can deal with problems, whatever it is. So if you lump a load onto the depressant or sedative side, the scales tip. So your brain realizes there's been a disturbance to the balance and it seeks to counter it. So it puts an equal amount of weight on the stimulant side. So it brings you back to normal. So your brain's constantly trying to achieve this mental balance. When you take drugs or certain drugs anyway, it takes steps to counter them. And it absolutely does this with alcohol. 
So you've now got a lot more weight on both sides, right? And it's equally balanced. The problem is the alcohol after five, I think the alcohol's half-life is about five hours, which means if you have a drink, half of it leaves your system in five hours and another five hours, another half and et cetera, et cetera. So it slowly dissipates from your system. But when it does go from your system, imagine taking then the weight that you've put on the sedative side of the scale off. The balance tips and it tips inside of the stimulant side. So this is another reason why we wake up at night, because when the alcohol wears off, there's that I, I liken it to when you drink too much caffeine and you feel kind of like a bit uptight, a bit unpleasant. It's what anxiety is, that colloquial term for the anxiety you feel after you've been drinking. Another way to put it very simply, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So whatever sedating or dumbing effect you get from an alcoholic drink, there's a corresponding feeling of anxiety or restlessness when it wears off. And so that, again, that's why a lot of people will find they wake up after they've been drinking. It's the equivalent of... So, and it's usually almost exactly at the five hour point. If people are still like sniffing around sobriety, they're still drinking. It's quite, it's quite interesting this, but look at the time you had your last drink. Look at the time you wake up at night. It's almost exactly five hours. Wow. Can alter a bit if you've been eating because that slows down the, the, the um, absorption of the alcohol in your system. So that can interfere with it. But usually you find you're awake after about five hours. And it's that, that massive increase in stimulation that your brain's created, but the alcohol's worn off. I quite often say to people, imagine you need eight hours sleep to be at your absolute best, right? And you sleep from 11 in, at night until seven in the morning. Drinking alcohol is like setting an alarm three or four in the morning and getting up and drinking three or four drugs of really strong black coffee and then lying there for the next rest of the night just twitching and shaking and your heart pounding and not being able to sleep. That's pretty much what you're doing when you drink coffee. Not drink coffee, that's pretty much what you're doing when you drink alcohol. Yeah, I mean, that. I'm, I'm almost wincing even thinking of it. Even though it was 10 years ago, I can quite easily put myself back in those shoes. I was there often enough. And exactly, it's that rebound effect, isn't it? So the brain's trying to get that yeah, balance. Yeah. It's loaded up the other side to yeah. balance off the fact that you've been hit with all this sort of neurochemistry explosion. And then, of course, the alcohol starts to dissipate. And then you're completely out of balance, which flips you the other way, which causes that sense of anxiety because there's too much stimulant in your body. If you overstimulate exactly. your body, that's exactly it. You go into a panic attack or you have anxiety and this beautiful neurochemistry. And I think why it's great to have these conversations, which I'm loving by the way, is because you never consider these things, do we? We've got such a cultural uh, no, busy people. blind yeah. spot to, to alcohol. It's just, oh, it's just a drink. We, we never pause to think, oh, actually it's the drug that's inside the drink. And of course, like all drugs, it's going to attack us at the, the neurochemical level. What is that actually doing? We never even think about that stuff. We never really think about why is it I'm hung over and tired and jaded. We don't really consider that actually it's just disrupted like in our brains. For example, the leading cause of dementia is head trauma. The second leading cause of dementia is alcohol. And people just don't realize Jeez, that. People do, have no yeah. insight to the second. And if you look at what's one of the leading causes of head trauma, that's alcohol as well. And so oh, it makes perfect sense. That's mad. It, it yeah, is. Yeah. And then we have these incredible scenarios Jeez. where people are so unaware. And that's what it is. I think a lot of the work we do is just to bring awareness to people. You get these scenarios where I looked at a dementia, a big dementia charity 
for example, and a lot of their fundraising events involve alcohol. And I'm like, it's terrible, that, isn't it? That, it's that, mad. So it doesn't make any sense. And it's not because those well-meaning people no. are doing that deliberately. They're just totally unaware. But how can you be involved? Yeah. How can a like a dementia charity not make everyone aware that the sort of number one thing effectively that might cause dementia like is alcohol? Why do you think we have this blind spot? It's crazy, isn't it? I think part of it is societal in fact i think mainly it's societal so, so i was on facebook once and there was a meme on there these ridiculous things like a glass of red wine is good for you it does duh, duh, duh. and i thought what utter rubbish and i went back to the source of it and the source was a i forget which one but it was a facebook page and it wasn't specifically about alcohol but they were just creating news content and coincidentally enough i was looking through about a week before they'd done an article about someone who'd stopped drinking and felt really good for it. Okay. So this same place that has put forward this ridiculous meme saying a glass of red wine is good for you a week previously had done a, you know, similar stuff, like another story, but on someone who was like talking about the benefits of quitting drinking. Now the meme had something like, I don't know how many tens of thousands of likes and thousands of shares whereas the chat, the person who'd stopped drinking and was talking about it, how good it was, had two or three shares and a sort of similar number of likes. And I think this is the problem. 87% of the population drink and they're very fond of burying their heads in the sand because people, whatever their reason, they believe they enjoy doing it and they don't want to stop. So if you put something under their nose that says, you know what, you would be a lot better off without this, they can't get rid of it quick enough. If you get to give them something that says, keep going, keep drinking, they, they'll lap it up. So there's that societal kind of pressure because there's so many, The like I say, 87% of the population drink and they all have a vested interest in maintaining that it's fine, it's good, it's enjoyable. There's no problem with it as long as you don't un overdo it. I think some balloons yeah. appeared a minute ago when say? I did that. Did you see the balloons that appeared? I know, I saw that. <laughs> what is that about? Yeah, I saw that it on your one. It's, I don't know, it's, it's how weird. I, I've been presenting all weekend. Weird. And when I do various hand movements, and I thought that was only on Zoom, but balloons appeared, didn't they, behind me? If I do this... Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, there it oh, is. Right. Look. <laughs> look at that. Fireworks. Now, if you're listening to this, oh, wow. you might hear William and I just having a bit of fun. It's a little interlude where I'm just showing that I can create fireworks in the back of my video. I'll try and share it with you if, if you watch this on YouTube. But we were talking about society and why we think we've got this cultural blind spot as it were to alcohol that every celebration every commiseration every day that ends in why i've got a daughter that's coming up to her 18th first birthday try buying a birthday card for an 18 year old that doesn't involve alcohol it's almost oh impossible that's mad isn't what it are we, what are we yeah. doing Jeez, yeah i quite often get pulled up for this but i say one of the biggest one of the biggest reasons people drink is actually ignorance but before people get very angry about this, let me be very clear. I'm not using the word ignorance as in stupidity. I'm using it as in a lack of information, literally just a knowledge gap. No fault of anyone's just they don't have this knowledge gap. The amount of times I speak to drinkers and I'm talking about alcohol and they say, oh, I wake up at night and explain like I did just now the mechanics between waking up at night. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that. And it, it to me, it kind of... I find it amazing that it can have such a massive impact on 
not only mental health, but just how good we feel each day and people don't appreciate it. And you still now hear people saying, oh, I've got a big presentation or a big day tomorrow. I'm going to have a couple of drinks to help me get to sleep. And again, it's if these people only realized the truth of the matter or had that knowledge gap filled with information, I'm convinced a lot of people will be making some very different choices around alcohol. I totally agree. And I think this is the big mission that I'm on, even on a personal mission. I've got this documentary that we're making this year. And, and one of the reasons I want to make that documentary, and again, it aligns with the, the wonderful books that you've put out into the world as well, that these are really just our weapons of mass instruction. We're trying to wake people up, aren't we? We're trying to give them that awareness that, yeah. that we didn't have. You and I go back 15 years, we were completely unaware, or I certainly was unaware, yeah. exactly the same as where most people are. We're just aware now because we've immersed ourselves in this alcohol-free world for so long. And exactly that, most adults globally are unaware of all these knock-on consequences. It's middle-lane drinkers of alcohol on mm. their relationships, on their performance, on their health. Unlike smoking, for example, everyone is aware of mm. smoking, right? And the health implications of smoking. But lots of people still choose to smoke, and that's totally fine. I always say, I'm not anti-alcohol, I'm pro-awareness. I would love alcohol to be in the same place as smoking where people are totally aware of all the wonderful things that we're discussing, all the brilliant things that are in your book. And then from that empowered place, if they still choose to drink, brilliant, go for it, right? Enjoy it, if you know what I mean, because that's a place of awareness. But at the moment, we live in a society and there's about 2 billion middle lane drinkers. Most of them are completely unaware of the effects and implications of alcohol. And I wondered, why do you think that is? Why do you think we are so culturally unaware? Of course, lots of people drink, so that's part of it. But what else do you think is causing that? I think so. So a lot of the understanding about this has only come out very recently. So I published Alcohol Explained in 15, I think. And, and when I published it, there was very little out there about alcohol. So the understanding we've got of alcohol is quite recent anyway. And I think it takes a long time, like we saw with smoking, I think it was around the Second World War, I think the 40s or 50s that they first kind of proved that link between smoking and lung cancer. But smoking just carried on for decades afterwards, it takes a long time, because we're not just talking about putting the information out there. We're talking about people actually absorbing it, thinking about it, agreeing with it, then talking to the next generation about it. So as they grow up, they have a slightly different perspective than their parents had. So I often think of like society's views almost like a, a tanker. When you try and stop a tanker and turn it around, it takes 11 miles or something before it even stops. It's kind of a similar thing. It just takes a long time to change people's perspectives. And I think the problem is with alcohol, we are with alcohol probably where people were with smoking back in the, the 1930s, thinking there's nothing particularly wrong with it. Most people do it. It's sociable. It's fun. What's the problem with it? Yeah, it might make you cough if you have a bit too much, like you might get a hangover if you drink too much. But apart from that, there's no problem with it. The, 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 one of the things that fascinates me, so the medical branch of the World Health Organization classifies carcinogens and puts them carcinogens human beings and they, it puts them in different categories alcohol's in category one 
as a human carcinogen. So it's in the same category, it's the highest possible category. It's in the same category as cigarette smoking and asbestos. So when you say that to people, they're like, a lot of the time, they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that. But what I find fascinating, it was classified as that back in the mid 80s. Yeah. So it's been there for decades and, and people don't know. They don't know. Most of the time when you're talking to people who have gone alcohol free, most people are aware of this. But you talk to people who are still drinking, they just don't even it doesn't even cross them. Like, no, it's not you know, because you, you quite often see this again, like going back to this glass of red wine is good for you. Nonsense. People actually think it's good for them. And yet it's just as bad as cigarette smoking and asbestos. And this is what fascinates me. If we look at it like that, so we've got those carcinogens. It's a number one carcinogen alongside radiation, asbestos, smoking. Now, this is, let's get into some of the research that we see, which is, I'll put a line under it. Anything that suggests alcohol is good for you and its research is bullshit. It can never be. We've just mm -hmm. described how can something that metabolizes in your body as acetaldehyde, which is a number one carcinogen, that can never be good for you. All it can ever be is marketing sleight of hand or a jumped up study designed to confuse the public. And that's what tobacco did. The tobacco industry was convicted of deliberately trying to confuse the public because at that time, what they realized was most people smoked. Therefore, as long as they confused them, people in a confused state just do what they've always done, which in this instance was smoke. If you think about it with alcohol, almost everyone drinks alcohol. So all we have to do is, as an industry, is confuse people enough. And then they'll go, oh, well, one minute they're telling us alcohol's no good for us. And yeah. the next minute they're telling us a glass of red wine is good for us. I'm just going to do what I've always done, which is drink, right? So it makes sense. So just to put a line under that, it cannot ever be good for you, right? If it's a carcinogen, it would be the same as suggesting there's a, a running trail, a 10K running trail, lovely running trail. We've put loads of research behind it. If you walk that trail, run that trail, it's really good for you aerobically. It's good for your heart. But what we haven't mentioned is that trails through a, a disused nuclear plant and there's still quite a lot of radiation around. So as you run that trail, you're probably going to get some nuclear radiation in your body, which is cancer causing a carcinogen. Is anyone in their right mind ever doing that run? No one ever is doing that run. And no one could ever say that was healthy. It's a bit like building a gym in a lovely, it looks like a state of art room. We go, oh, there's a gym. We've done loads of research around it. It's really good. You lift these weights, you get stronger muscles. But what we haven't told you is the roof is a bit old and there's a bit of asbestos in the roof. So when you're working out, you're going to be breathing in that, which unfortunately is the number one carcinogen. But let's forget about that. Now, contrast that with alcohol. Here we have alcohol. It's the same thing. It's got a number one carcinogen inside it. And we put all this marketing around it and we go, oh, but that's all right. Oh, it don't matter. Yeah, a few drinks is fine. It's completely nutty, isn't it? No one would ever work out in that gym with asbestos and no one would ever run that trowel with radiation. Yet we are quaffing, drinking alcohol like it's going out of fashion. That's unbelievable, isn't it? It's mad, isn't it? Well, what I often say to people is with any alcoholic drink, you've got different ingredients in it. You've got the chemical alcohol, and then you've got a load of other stuff depending on what the drink is. So to take red wine for an, as an example, you've got what is basically fermented grape juice and alcohol. Every single study you ever read, actually, if you read into it, none of them rather cleverly say alcohol is good for you, but what they do is identify an alcoholic drink 
that they say is good for you. And what they'll do is they'll identify something in the drink that may might well be good for you, but it's not the alcohol. So with red wine, for example, it's juice that's fermented. So what happens is you basically leave it to rot and it becomes wine because the bacteria consumes sugar and it excretes carbon dioxide and alcohol. So we're actually eating bacteria. Alcohol is bacterial waste. Okay. So it's never the alcohol in there. It's something else within that thing that's left over. Now, red, like I say, red wine is made from grapes. Grapes are good for us. It's a fruit. It's good for you. So it won't be surprising if you make an alcoholic drink from wine that there is something in there good for you, but it's no more good than eating a handful of grapes. And in fact, the fermentation process does a massive amount of damage. Whereas if you eat raw grapes, they're really high in vitamin C. Because if you drink wine, it's got virtually, it's got no vitamin C in it at all. So what you're doing is you're taking something healthy you're ruining it, destroying most of the nutrients and stuff in there. And you're adding this horrible chemical that's a carcinogen. And then someone's coming along and saying, oh, hang on, there's still this residue of little something left in there that's good for you. Therefore, this entire product, wine, is good for you. And it's like, how are you even getting away with this? It's ridiculous. It's insane. Exactly. And then it confuses. And then by time people try and come out like us and have that conversation and people go, oh, it's too late. Because like generations have read that headline in their newspaper and then you get into an argument in the pub and you try and say, well, actually, red wine's not good for you. And people actually, I I did a radio interview and this was years ago and a really quite famous Mm. radio interviewer had a big show and literally cut me dead. I tried to say that alcohol wasn't good for you and it's metabolized into acetaldehyde. And they went, no, there's clear research and there's a lot of research that suggests moderate drinking is good for you red wine for example and was so like invested in it of course all those listeners would have heard that and walked away and again clearly moderate drinking is good for you Mm. but if you unpick those studies you realize it never can be as you say it's just something in the casing of the acetaldehyde like the antioxidants in the grapes that might be marginally good for you i always think it's a bit like saying there's a swimming pool and you can swim to the end of the swimming pool and that's great. That's good for you. But what we haven't told you is there's ravenous sharks and it's feeding time. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like that Valco, isn't it? Yeah, Why yeah. would you ever look to that thing for something that's healthy when it claims a carcinogen? And I love having these conversations because I think this is like often an awakening for people. They're like, oh, I just hadn't, I'd never even considered those things. And my big frustration, I don't know what your opinions on this are as to why we don't know. Like you said, in the 80s, we knew about this stuff. Why does not every single person in the UK globally are not fully aware of dementia, are not fully aware of these cancer-causing carcinogens? Why are we so miles off where we need to be in awareness, do you think? I My answer to that is, again, look at the Facebook thing where pe- people, if you give them what they, if you give them something that affirms their beliefs, and something they want to see, they'll learn it, they'll good. And look at your radio interviewer. You're there with some genuine, important information, and he's just not listening, not interested. It goes against what I have. And, and this is what it is, what I have chosen to believe. And this is the order of events is I drink alcohol. I believe it makes me feel good. I believe I need it to enjoy Christmas, holidays. I believe I need it to relax, to sleep, whatever it is. So therefore, I'm going to keep doing this. To turn my mind away from that 
to start thinking, actually, I need to build a life without alcohol takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of single mindedness. And I always say to people, if you're even thinking about stopping drinking, well done, because you've done more than most people will ever do, because most people can't even bear the thought of it. But so, so you've got this population of people, 87 percent, who want to believe that drinking is good for them, that there's no downside to it, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not interested in anything else that suggests it might not be. And the problem we've got, I suppose we always had it to a degree. But the information you're getting under your nose is what information that other people have liked and shared. Okay, you open Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, the algorithms at play want to keep you in there. They want your nose stuck in that phone, in that app, because then they sell more advertising. And the way they do that is to find posts that are popular and keep shoving them in front of people to hope they keep them flicking through. And like I say, you put a post out there saying alcohol is not good for you and no one's interested. So it just drops right off. But you put a post on there, oh, glass of red wine's good for you. Everyone's all over it because most people drink and most people love to have that affirmed that they're doing the right thing. Because it kind of, it lets them off the hook in a way. Like you were saying, if I'm completely the same as you, I have no vested in I get a huge amount of pleasure when people stop drinking because I genuinely believe it's the good thing for them to do but if someone says to me I'm going to drink I'm like fine that's your decision I don't mind what you do with your life but what I do believe like you people should be well informed so if someone says to me I drink I'm like fine you drink if they say I drink because it helps me sleep I say no that's not right because it doesn't help anyone sleep it can't do it's just not physically possible and I think that's the point there. People, they're looking for that thing that affirms what they want to believe and what they want to keep doing and to justify something they've really already decided to do. Um, and I think that's why it's so difficult. And unfortunately, people, another thing people don't realise is how much their actions are being passed on to their children. So children are like sponges and they absorb what's going on in the world. And a lot of that comes from their, their um, adult role models. So if they see mum and dad having a drink every time they're annoyed or at the end of every day or to enjoy themselves on holiday, you know, we're sending a very clear message to our kids. And of course, when they hit 14, 15, 16, and I know it's tailing off in this generation a bit, Generation X, I think, are giving up alcohol more than any other generation on the planet, which is great to see. But the fact of the matter is, in all these ways, we're still passing on these like this bad habits and this misinformation onto our kids. I mean, obviously, something's going right, because like I say, Generation X are not drinking in the way we used to. Yeah, which is really encouraging. And on that note, what are the changes, the positive changes you've seen over the last 10 years? I remember when I first got into this, no one really understood the middle lane bit at all. It was very black and white when it came to drinking. And now there was no sober influencers that wasn't a thing there was no alcohol free alternatives that didn't exist so we've obviously seen this huge groundswell of movement we've got so far to go you, you and i can get caught up in the bubble that is alcohol free and think everyone's doing it and then you step out into the real world and go actually maybe they're not but what are some of the things that you've noticed and, and Neo, how do you see the future of this alcohol free space so the biggest and best part of the movement change I've seen since 10 years ago to today is like you say, it was very linear 10 years ago. You would approach the problem like this. You would say, am I alcoholic, i.e. dependent on alcohol? If the answer is yes, I have to quit. If the answer is no, 
fine, I just carry on, but I'll maybe try and quit, cut back a bit and drink a bit less. And that's how people approached it. Now, more and more people are coming at it a completely different angle and just saying, is this serving me? Am I getting more out of this than I'm putting in? I've had people who stopped drinking who are clearly very alcohol dependent. I've had one lady who stopped drinking who used to have a glass of red wine, one glass once or twice a week. When she had it, she found it wasn't serving her. She was didn't sleep very well. She had a lack of energy the next day, but she was still struggling to give up that one glass. No one in the world would look at her and say she was alcoholic or dependent on alcohol in any way, shape or form. But that's the best part I'm seeing. People are stopping and thinking, actually, you know what? Stop for a minute. What is this substance I'm drinking, consuming on a regular basis? And what is it really doing for me? Forget the downside. What am I actually getting from it? Is it helping social situations? Because for a very simple example, I used to enjoy social situations when I was a kid. It was only when I started drinking that I suddenly found I couldn't really enjoy them quite the same way without alcohol. And I think for me, that's the biggest and most beautiful part of it is people. And as people's mind changes, I think we're going to see more and more people quit. Because I genuinely believe, having said, it's your decision, here's the information, you go and make your own decision. I genuinely believe people are better off when they stop drinking. Because I just don't, I can't imagine a human being who could turn around and say, I'm happier not sleeping properly. I'm happier not having the energy or the fitness that I would have if, have if I wasn't doing this. And I struggle to comprehend anyone. So, so, so I think that approach, that difference in approach is what's going to change everything for us. Yeah, and, and I totally agree. I think it is. And that's been my approach all along. It's the let's celebrate in many ways, the wins, the joys of not drinking, as opposed to that mindset of I've been a naughty boy or a naughty girl, and I've had my hand in the sweetie jar for too long. And now I've got to stop doing that thing that's really amazing and fun and incredible. And everyone else is going to have a fabulous life. And I'm going to suffer for the fact that I'm not drinking is to just completely eradicate and change and shapeshift that narrative that we're seeing to actually, why would I drink? It makes no sense if I want to be optimal in my health, the partner I want to be, the par parent that I want to be, the employee, the entrepreneur that I want to be, the athlete that I want to be. I want to smile, I want optimal physical and mental health. I want to be able to socialize. I want to be able to drive home if I need to. I want to be there for my family. I want to be present, all those things. Like when you see it through that lens, I think it's bringing this whole new world to it. And I think that's why a younger generation are looking at it very differently. I also think because of social media, there's probably more pressure to not get yourself into an intoxicated state and do something you later regret that might end up on a phone. We never had that mm -hmm. issue far from it. And I also like to think with alcohol-free alternatives now, there's new options. We didn't have that option of alcohol-free alternatives to feel grown up and all of those things and that sort of placebo of drinking or taking something that felt like our parents, but it wasn't the thing that contained the alcohol and whatnot. So I think it's a really exciting time to be part of the alcohol-free movement. And it's wonderful having had some time with you to catch up today. We could have easily done two or three of these. So we need to come back for definitely a part two, if that's okay, because there's so much more I'd like to oh, definitely. dig in with you. Yeah, and yeah. what I did want to say finally is congratulations almost your 10 years that's a pretty cool thing thank you for putting your books out into the world i can't explain two and the many other explained books that you have and thank you for consistently showing up consistently shining your light i know through your work your energy has impacted the lives of many people and i think that's a pretty cool thing and the best part 
because you're so fit and healthy, like myself, we're just warming up. You're just warming up. Yeah. Mm. No, thanks, Andy. And yeah, congratulations. I didn't realize we were so close on that soberversary, but congratulations as well. Fantastic yeah, time of year. Valentine's, I'll give you a little nudge on Valentine's to, <laughs> to celebrate. And thank you for joining me, my man. We'll call it a wrap there and we'll do part two again pretty soon. Perfect. Thanks, Andy. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I could have spent hours and hours waxing lyrical, talking all things alcohol-free with William. Brilliant conversation. It really was a meeting of alcohol-free minds. We will do a round two, no doubt. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one. And don't forget to show your support. Please subscribe. Tell your friends about this podcast. Get them involved in the alcohol-free documentary. Let people know we're here shining that light predominantly in the alcohol-free space to try and inspire people to transform their lives and the lives of others by coming on this incredible adventure of alcohol-freeness with myself and you all. I thank you again for listening. I'll see you all very soon. Let's do this. <laughs>